0: Thank you, Paul, for making the Word of God come alive to us this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we are a people in, uh, in need of security and in need of uh, healing, and we are a people in need of hope. And I just um, think about the words that Sharon was singing, it's just how nothing is left unredeemed by you and what a promise that is uh, what a what a glorious hope that is and even things that seem to want to destroy us and leave us pretty much crushed that you're able to take it and redeem it and use it for good and we thank you for that that um that uh, you are our wounded healer um, who takes everything and mends it. And all of these broken values and qualities that we think are so important, that we believe are so important, we, we anticipate you're mending those as well. And so, Father, we want to give you this morning, this time as we're gathered together, uh, both in this room and in the homes across the gorge. and that um we're going to count on your promise of unity through the holy spirit even though we are not all physically together in one place but we're going to count on that and take it by faith that you have done that you've created it by the power of your holy spirit so father we want to be followers of you we want to submit to your leadership and your authority we want to do things the way you do them and we want to see people the way you see them and treat them the way you treat them. And so, Father, we are asking for the empowerment of your Holy Spirit, that we truly will be your witnesses in, in all that we do and all that we say and in, in even who we are. Not only do the people that are around us and close to us, but the people we run into, the people that, um, uh, that you have cross our paths, we want Jesus to shine. We want Jesus to shine forth. And so with that prayer, Father, we look at your word this morning. In the name of Jesus, amen. We are continuing our, our series this morning on, um, on these uh, values that we've looked at. We're down to the last one. We'll tie it up next week, finish up the series. It's uh, Liberty Weekend, but we will finish up the series. And we have looked at them all, and we've all, uh, um, what I've tried to, to, to communicate... Is how important these things are, these values that we say that are important, that we live by, that, that, um, that transcends us, that transcends humanity, and I'm trying to argue that they all point to a creator God, but it's uh, a point in two directions. They also point to the brokenness of humanity. They all point to our rebellion, and it's probably no better seen and, and no clearer seen than it is in, the, in this value of power. Uh, that it's something that points to God and at the same time points to us. And uh, the the question we raised last week, you know, uh, is it a dirty word? Well, I try to conclude that yes, power does matter. It does matter to us and uh, it is important to us. And if you look at the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, it is about power. It begins with power, with the creation, and it ends with power, with the new creation. It is all about power. And uh, even, the, even the fallness of, the, of, of humanity in the garden is about power. Um, God told us that God, when he created humankind, he said, you know, I want you to be fruitful and multiply and you will have dominion over the earth. Now, dominion is not exploitation. It means that God has built us this house for us to live in and we have a responsibility to take care of it. And God reaffirms that in Psalm 8. He says, yes, you do have dominion over the earth, but do it wisely. And then in Psalm 72, just have this great description of what this authority looks like, what it is supposed to look like, how it is supposed to to, uh, play itself out. And even the the sin in the garden was about power. It was about wanting to be more, have more, know more, it was really about humankind wanting to, to, to exert their supremacy over the creation. And so from the very beginning, it's about dominion. And God has continued to want us to do that. He continually wants us to be responsible for this creation. He wants us to have dominion, but have it as wise and obedient servants. People who rely on God's judgment and people who rely on God's wisdom. And that we implement this in our community in the way Psalm 72 describes as a place of healing and a place of hope. And that's exactly how Jesus expressed his power, through healing and hope. And there are a lot of people who get a glimpse of this calling of God that we're supposed to have dominion over the earth, and so we have people who are delegated to have power and authority, and they begin to... What we say in, in, the, in English is, play God. The problem is, they forget to imitate the God they're supposedly playing. And that's where the problem comes in. They, they do not imitate this God who knows nothing of this naked bullying power. They don't imitate the God who is self-giving and generous and loving and the God of new life. They begin to take it on themselves because they want more power. They don't imitate the generous, power-sharing God that we know. The God that we know in Jesus Christ. The God who came with saving power in complete, utter vulnerability to show us what power was all like. So power does matter. It's just that we can't seem to get it right. We can't seem to get truth right. We can't seem to get justice right. We can't seem to get this right either. And I would argue that the story of John, the Gospel of John, is the Gospel, is a story on power. From the very beginning, John chapter 1 to the very end. And what's interesting is you come to the end of the book in chapters 18 and 19, you have two chapters, this extensive section of all the Gospels of Pilate and Jesus confronting one another. That you have this, basically this contrast of powers and I think these two chapters tell us something very vital about God and about God's creation and it tells us about these powers these two kinds of powers of Pilate and Jesus and that's an emergency (laughs) okay okay two kinds of powers in chapters 18 and 19 and you have Jesus and Pilate, but this is not a confrontation of equals. The people that are onlooking this scene, this, con- this, this conflict, this confrontation between Pilate and Jesus, they see one thing, and the readers of John see something else. It is not a confrontation of equals. So what did, if you were onlookers, there are two kinds of powers that we on display here. The love of power and the power of love. And before you talk about, the, I mean, this may sound cliche, but this is the best way I know to describe it. This love of power versus the power of love. And you may look at this power of love and say, oh, that sounds squishy and sentimental, but if you look at the gospel, it is anything but squishy and sentimental. So if you're the onlookers, looking at the, looking at the scene with Jesus and Pilate, and you're looking at Jesus, what did the onlookers see? What did they see when they saw Jesus? They saw someone who was um, lonely, who was uh, um, appearing weak, uh, someone who was vulnerable, someone who was defensive, uh, someone who was uh, uh, portrayed as a fake king, and someone who was flogged by the Roman government, someone who was sneered at by soldiers, Uh, Someone who was in great need of of mercy. Uh, They saw a would-be Messiah who was rejected and ultimately going to be killed. This is what people saw when they saw Jesus. But what do the readers see? What do we see? We see the Word made flesh. We see the Lord of creation. We see the King of Israel we see the ruler of the universe. So when an onlooker looks at this scene and they're seeing that this is not a confrontation of equals because you've got Pilate over here and you've got Jesus over here and Jesus does not look like an equal. But if we're reading the Gospel of John, we understand that yes, this is not a confrontation among equals. This is not a meeting of equals. In fact, Pilate's out of his league. So what do the people see when they see Pilate? Well, they see a Roman governor they see uh, somebody who has the power to kill somebody and the power to release somebody. Uh, they see a, uh, um, uh, somebody who answers to Caesar, uh, someone who submits to the government but has to submit to Caesar but also has power. But what do, the, what do we see? What do the readers see when we look at Pilate? We see someone who is a weak politician we see a person who is in over his head. We see a person who, uh, who is angry at being manipulated by the religious establishment. But we also see a man who goes after petty revenge and nails the king of the Jews on the cross just to poke at the, at the religious leaders a little bit, not knowing that he was actually speaking the truth. We, speak, we see a man who is uh, delegated to have the authority. Jesus says, you have the authority to do that, which means he also has the responsibility for what he's doing, that he is also held accountable. And Jesus tells Pilate, you know what? My kingdom is not the kind of kingdom that grows out of this world. My kingdom is different. My kingdom is not of this world, but it is certainly for this world. My kingdom is very, very different. My kingdom follows the pattern of Psalm 72, not the political kingdom. It is not of this. He says, if my kingdom was of this world, was this kind of world, then I would be leading an armed rebellion. But I'm not. Now, Peter tried that, didn't he? He pulled out the sword, and he tried to lead an armed rebellion, And Jesus said, no, this is not what this kingdom is all about. And I can imagine Peter was probably thinking, before we're too hard on Peter, I think we kind of do the same thing. We kind of think, okay, Jesus, this love thing is great when we're around the table. And it's just us. This power, this this power of love, this is a cool thing. But when you get out in the real world, you're going to need a sword. And Peter thought that. And Jesus is telling us, no, this is a different kind of kingdom. This is a contrast. So we're going to look at first the, the love of power. What does that look like? What does it mean? These are principles and powers that Paul says, and they were created, but they've also rebelled. There is this spiritual reality behind all this. And secularists and materialists have a hard time with this idea. And and frankly, even Christians have a hard time with this idea. We think of institutions and organizations and governments and corporations or whatever as sort of these neutral, sterile things, but they're not. There is a spiritual reality behind them. And it's not in the superficial way that a lot of Christians think that there are that's a bunch of these naughty demons just kind of raking havoc on things. This is a real spiritual power. It's not stuff that's up there. It's stuff that's within, within, and it destroys. It destroys trust. It destroys relationships. It destroys integrity. It destroys even dialogue. And the way I read the New Testament, the way I read the Scriptures, is that this spirituality behind these things is for real. It is incarnation. It is the force. Paul even kind of implies that it is the energizing force behind the crucifixion. And it is all these things that are, that are, that are behind us that kind of gives you this spirit of the group, this, this ethos, this, this energizing force, this mood of the group. Just for example, if you take the Ku Klux Klan. The Ku Klux Klan is, is made up of people with a lot of hate. But you bring them together as a group and it's bigger than the sum of its parts. We could say the same thing today about, about the terrorist organizations of ISIS and Al-Qaeda, that these individuals have this help, but you bring them together, and it's a force. It's a spirit. It's an evil spirit that's behind them. And, and as Christians, we kind of kind of think of it as, as these things as sort of neutral, you know, but, but there isn't. I really believe there is this spiritual force that is behind these things. And it's not just little demons causing mischief. This is something that's invisible, but real. Real behind us. What does it look like? Well, just some biblical examples. It looks like Saul and David. Saul had, King Saul had the power in his hand, but you cannot, you cannot with power control affection. And the people fell in love with David. And so what did Saul do? Rather than let go of power, he tried to commit murder. It took good friends and made them enemies, mortal enemies, Saul and David. It looks like um, when the disciples are arguing who's the greatest among them. Because when you argue who's the greatest among each other, we're also arguing who is the least. And the the disciples, it must have been kind of a big scene because it's included in every single one of the Gospels, these stories of the the, the, the disciples arguing who's going to be the greatest, who's going to sit at the right hand, who's going to sit next to the throne. And what does Jesus do? He takes a child and puts him in front of him and says, you're supposed to be like that. Not arguing about who's the greatest and who's the least. It looks like Simon Magnus in Acts who tried to merchandise Christianity. Who tried to sell it? And my feeling is that this spirits of evil is bad enough when it's in other organizations and other far, in other um, uh, um, entities and institutions, but when it hits the church, when it hits Christianity, then it's especially diabolical. And there's just been lots and lots of Christian leaders, Christian laypeople, Christian workers who have been ruined because of pride. Because they try to merchandise Christianity. There's even podcasts on it these days about different failures of Christian leaders because of pride. That's what it looks like. And the thing is that the church has been given this awesome response to discern these things. We've been given this awesome responsibility to discern these spirits. John tells us we have to discern these, discern between these these spirits. And when we don't, tragedy happens. And that, to me, the best example of this is how the church got sucked into Nazi Germany. All the the German church just got sucked in completely with that, except the confessing Church, led by Karl Barth, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and... and, um, Oh, uh, what's the guy's name? Uh, Niemöller, Martin Niemöller. He's the guy who spent years in the concentration camp who came out and said, you know, when they came for the socialists, I didn't speak up because I'm not a socialist. They came for the union, uh, um, the trade unionists, but I didn't speak up because I'm not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jew, and I didn't speak up because I'm not a Jew. And then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. we've given this job to to do this to discern and the only way to do this is through prayer prayer is indispensable we cannot do it without prayer because without prayer we leave ourselves unprotected and when we leave ourselves unprotected what happens is regardless of of my piety uh what i how many times i go to church and how many how much i spend in devotions and my even if i'm a social activist or if I'm abstaining from all these sins, if I'm not protected by prayer, then those resources get depleted, and I end up becoming the monster that I'm praying against. Prayer is key. It's indispensable in this. And remember, when we pray about these things, you're talking to God, you're not talking to the demons. Sometimes we get into the conversation of wanting to talk to the demons. That's not prayer. Prayer is talking to God about the demons. And that's how we discern. that's how we discern from it. Before we move on to the prayer to the power of love, the positive, creative power. The, creat- the love of power is a destructive power, but the power of love is a creative power. Before we move on to that, I just want to mention something real specific. Is there ever a place for force? I think I think this is me that there is a biblical argument for police type power that power is to avoid chaos to put down anarchy and to create order it doesn't move the kingdom forward but it does create space for the kingdom to move forward so yes i do believe there is a place for that and i think there is a biblical support for that that there is a support for police type power so don't get me wrong that i'm just saying that's you know that's not that's not a, an option here. But just let's distinguish what it is. It creates space for the kingdom to move forward. The creative power is the powers that create. Let me move on to the next one here. The power of love, the power that creates. Power is not inherently bad. I wanted Paul to read that passage in, one, in Acts 1.8 because you can't say it any clearer than that, that we've been given the power. The Holy Spirit has been called a dunamis, A power. So it is a power. Don't think that it's a weakness. Don't think that it's just a sentimental hogwash. Uh, to quote, it's a wonderful life. There is a power and a power that creates. John begins his gospel by telling, telling us that those who receive him, the receive the word, he gave them the power, the authority to become children of God. Your translation may read something different, but it's the word, that's, it's the word used for authority there. And we don't really think of children as having much authority, but in this case, he says, you were given the authority to be children of God. Authority to do what? Well, if you read the rest of the story, you have the authority to wash each other's feet. You have the authority to serve. You have the authority to bend, wrap the towel around your waist, and wash each other's feet. We had this youth group come down every two years to do a missions project and i had them lined up i may have shared this story before i had them lined up to work in this one village we were doing a church plant it was a, a small village and i talked to the mayor and i said we've got a group of americans coming down american teenagers coming down well, t- Is there any help that you need in that city and he goes well we have this river that runs the stream that runs through the the town and it's the ta- it's the river that we use frankly for sewage and you know everything that runs through the runs through the village and it's being <coughs> grown over could they come and clear some of that out for us so that the river doesn't back up into the town when it rains during rainy season i said sure we can do that so i was talking to the youth pastor and i told him this is what we wanted him to do and he says oh what, i'm quoting here we're beyond that we want to do evangelism and one of us i asked well how many of your kids speak spanish for one thing And he says, well, we're bringing a a Spanish teacher, a high school Spanish teacher with us. Okay, okay. And the next question, I said, well, since when do we move beyond washing feet? Evangelism is great, but we also wash feet. We're called to do that. That's creative love. That's the power of love. That's what we must learn to do as the royal priesthood. That this is what he has delegated for us to do. That this is a different kind of power. Jesus has <clears throat> redefined it. He's redefined power as self-giving, selfless, generous, hospitality. That's how he defines power. And yes, power is broken in our world, but I really believe that, that once the church gets it, gets it in its head that this is how we practice power, we can even start to see it mend, maybe. Start to see it heal. Start to make it look better. So what does it look like? Well, it's used for the good of others. Think Joseph. Creative power is used for the good of others. Most of you know the story of Joseph. He was sold into slavery by his brothers. He he was in prison, and then he rose to a position of real power. And uh, his brothers came to to Egypt looking for food, and they didn't know that was his brother who was in charge of the whole thing. And they were bargaining with him. And what does Joseph do? He weeps and he receives them, and he forgives them, and he swallows his pride because of the good of others. That's creative power. Creative power demands humility and vulnerability. Think Moses. If anybody knew about real power, human power, worldly power, it's Moses, right? He grew up in the house of Pharaoh and took it on himself to kill somebody to exercise his power. And of course, we know the story of that too. He spent 40 years in the desert, And when God called him to come back, he he goes back with meekness and yet confidence in the power of God. Long gone was the arrogance, the impulsive violence. But we have a meek Moses confident in the power of God. It's marked with joy. Think of the book of Acts. Acts. Uh, when, when the guy was, the, was healed, you know, what did he do? He went up running and leaping, walking and leaping and praising God. And I think about something maybe a little more, 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 uh, uh, more quiet than that kind, of, that kind of joy. And I think of the, the Council of Jerusalem where the question was, are we going to allow Gentiles into this? And the Council of Jerusalem met together and they said, yes, anyone who claims Christ as Savior is our brother. And there was joy in the body and unity in the body because of that. It brings about joy, but it also brings about it sustains faithfulness. Coupled with that joy, we all know come, comes grief and anguish. Uh, Richard Foster says that that anguish and joy are in a symbiotic relationship; that we, all, we they kind of just come together. Jeremiah is the perfect example of this. In one of the, the things, could not get any worse for Israel than Jeremiah's time. And what does he do? He he proclaims the truth, but he also proclaims hope. That there will come a time where God will renew that covenant and he will write the law on our hearts and not on tablets. And he said in spite of what's going on, in spite of the disaster, in spite of the catastrophe, we must remain faithful. And it sustains faithfulness. So how do we live it out? We'll finish up with this. Creative power of love promotes self-control, not self-indulgence. When we are practicing creative power of the Holy Spirit, it is self-control, not self-indulgence. It means it's a life of discipline. And I've talked about spiritual disciplines a lot, but that's the idea, that we discipline doing spiritual disciplines, whether it's fasting, service, uh, Scripture reading, memorization, prayer, uh, meditation, contemplation, all these disciplines transform us rather than self indulgence. Creative power, love, the creative power of love nurtures confidence, not subservience. And this is really important, especially, I I believe, in in families where we nurture uh, confidence in our children, not just subservience. Sue used to do this uh, seminar on discipline of young children, and she'd always explain to the parents that we, at the beginning when they're young, yes, we have to control things. We have to control them in certain ways. But then we're looking and moving toward a little bit of self-control, which is a fruit of the Spirit, and ultimately controlled by the Holy Spirit. We, boost, we teach confidence, nurture confidence in trusting God, not subservience. And creative power of love enhances communication, not isolation. The destructive power destroys dialogue, destroys conversation. This power promotes communication, not isolation, not by themselves. Creative power of love cultivates growth and not inferiority this is especially good for teachers that we want to cultivate growth in the person without demeaning without ultimate criticizing of just a, a re- eroding of confidence a re- eroding of their ability this ennobles us and creative power liberates it doesn't incarcerate It liberates us. It doesn't try to control us. My job on Sunday mornings is to present the truth of God as best as I see it and as best as I can. And then to love you. My job is not to control you or fix you or straighten you out. It is to liberate you, to grow in Christ, not incarcerate it's a place of lavish freedom and lavish freedom always always fertilizes friendships friendships grow out of that it is not that you have to please me or i have to please you it is a power that frees and doesn't bind It all boils down to this. The resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ on the throne. All that on the throne is the power of love set up against and over the love of power. The ascension and the resurrection of Christ sets the power of love over and against, over and against the love of power. In Daniel 7, there's a sort of courtroom scene. And uh, Daniel describes all these empires. He describes them as monsters. Because that's what they are. They're monsters. And every empire, before and after Rome, continues to babble on about all the things they can do. But the one supreme thing that they can do is kill. That's what they can do. God has exalted His own Son, Over that. Empires can kill. And Jesus had, we have this incredibly ridiculous paradox of power at the end of John, where we have Jesus submitting to the power of the empire that kills, but Jesus believed in a God that raises the dead. That the Son of Man is sitting on the throne. That he is a human being and he has dominion and authority over the power. Churches and Christians sometimes think that we can defeat these powers at their own game, that we can use the same thing, that the the victory of our cause is the most important thing in the world and that we can use whatever means we want to to ensure that victory. That somehow that end justifies the means and we can use the same means as the as the as the world to achieve that victory but that distorts the whole meaning of the cross and the resurrection and the ascension it changes everything jesus is not some abstract concept he is a person who lives and died and is resurrected who sits on the throne He is a person who is still generous. He is a person who is still living. He is a person who is still giving. He is a person who is still loving. And when God raised him from the dead, he didn't just vindicate Jesus, the person, he also vindicated his way. And as children, we are to be walking in his way. That's how we exercise power. Why? Because God says that there is another dimension called heaven and we can't see it it's unseen but it is real it is a real dimension it is reality and in that dimension the cross is a victory and in that dimension the powers have been defeated in that dimension it is real And we are to live that reality. We are to follow that way. That Jesus believed that God could and does raise the dead. And yes, it is a ridiculous paradox. That true power looks like apparent failure. That true power looks like the shameful death of a young Jew at the hands of a ruthless empire. It looks like defeat. But it's real. It's real power. That is real. Not just what we see. That he still is a giving, loving, generous Lord. And one day every knee will bow to him because of this. And every tongue will confess one day that he is Lord. And until that day comes... We live to implement it. We implement the victory every day. That's the power. That's the power that we see in Pilate and Jesus. That's the power conflict we see between the cross and the empire. That it may look like defeat, but it's a victory. The power of love replaces the destructive love of power. That's the bottom line. That the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus on the throne sets the power of love against the love of power and wins. It sounds sentimental. It sounds mushy. But Jesus does not think it is mushy or sentimental. All we have to do is look at the cross and realize how true that is. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for the power that comes from the Holy Spirit. The power that, that can conquer all evil. Father, teach us to trust that power. Teach us to live it. In Jesus' name, amen.